What a great prayer song. I'm hoping that we just transferred that song as a prayer to what we're getting ready to do. It's so good. Oh Lord, we, we pray, reveal your glory through the teaching of your word until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. So good. So today we're going to finish up our series, um, our walk through the Gospels, taking a snapshot look of uh, Jesus and what he has to say about worship. So as we've looked at Jesus' teaching on worship, one of the things that I think we've continually seen is this insidious tendency, this sneaky plan of Satan's to get us to drift from true worship to vain worship. So we have this tendency to drift, to relegate worship of God to the margin, to the outskirts of our lives, the tendency to focus on our own personal preferences or the tendency to go through religious motions in worship. And through each week I've seen these themes, Christ wanting to rescue us from these tendencies. They're all distractions from true worship. Yet we've also seen Jesus' relentless pursuit to draw his people, to draw us back to true worship, to confront hard issues that cause us to drift, right? To get after some of this, our tendency to focus on what other people are doing or not doing, to call out our tendency to self-focus. Well, I don't really like this style or this method or that song or this. It's not about us. To align ourselves with Jesus' call to true worship. This starts throughout the week. This is a lifestyle, not a one hour a week thing. And to lift our eyes and our lives to God and His glory. So this is how we have been defining worship. It's been amending and changing a little bit. But we talked about this he, me, pledge, be kind of thought. Just this idea of this all-encompassing understanding of worship. So when we use this term, this word worship, what does it mean? To know God for who He is and to see and to ponder His redemptive works. We just read that in Psalm 145. That's what the psalmist was doing. And then to respond to that knowledge by esteeming God, by valuing Him, by treasuring Him, and being satisfied with Him. And consequently then, we see ourselves rightly before Him, this unscalable chasm between His holiness, His character and ours, struck with the utter need for our rescue from our sinful rebellion and His grace in providing that for us. Church, when we see God for who He is and then we for who we are, and we're struck and awed by His coming to us, this personalizes and it increases our worship. It's what's happening with the psalmist. Lord, You're great, but not only are You great, I see myself in relationship to You. And that takes worship from being something that's out there that everybody's doing to something that's in here that I long to do. And then as a result, we pledge ourselves wholeheartedly and completely to live for the Lord under His wisdom, constantly and joyfully aligning ourselves with our character, His value, His will, His ways, 
We step out, we step back in. He, you're, you're my compass, I get underneath you. And so we say with the prophet Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. This is a natural response to true worship. Lord, there's you, then there's me. Look how good you've been to me. I'll do whatever you ask. Here I am, send me. And so the result is our lives are progressively permeated with actions that are consistent with God's character. Progressively permeated. We're not, it's not a one and done. It's all the time. As we focus on the Lord, see ourselves for who we are, grateful for our rescue, pledge ourselves to Him, we're progressively permeated with His character. Last night we celebrated my mom's 84th birthday. We sat around, and one of the things that struck me hearing from some of my siblings and her grandchildren and and great nieces and nephews and great-grandchildren was this progressive Christ-likeness. It's true for us, church, when we put God in His place and see ourselves for who we are, continually pledge ourselves to Him, we progressively become more like Him. This is true worship. This is worship in spirit and in truth. It's what Jesus means. It's also the invitation that Jesus gives to the woman at the well. An invitation to this kind of life. We're going to see, and many of us are familiar with this story in John chapter 4, but we're going to see that this woman at the well think we can relate. She wants to make worship about location. She wants to make worship about style and even denomination. But Jesus brings it back to a personal question about the kind of people that God seeks. And do you want to be one of them? So as we continue to consider what Jesus thinks about worship, it's really appropriate that we conclude uh, with John's gospel, not only because it's the last book, but this is one of the most prominent portions of Scripture on the topic of worship. So in John's whole entire gospel, he mentions the word worship 13 times. Ten of those times are right here in John chapter 4, verses 16 through 26. So John 4 is the story of the woman at the well. It's an interaction between an adulterous, sinful woman who's morally bankrupt, a half-breed in a strange location. Now, when I say strange location, the normal route for a Jewish person to, to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee was actually, if, if you look at a map, Galilee is up here, Jerusalem is down here, Samaria is about right in the middle, and it's a straight shot. The Jordan River runs right up the middle. So if you want to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, you just head straight. But the, the trajectory for a Jewish person was to cross over the Jordan River, north through an area called Perea, West back over the Jordan River. You have to cross the river twice. And then just a little short shot north to Galilee. Why is that? If you remember any biblical history, 
the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms right around 975 BC. So there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and that came as a result of a bunch of bad kings and prophets. You kind of remember this story, maybe. But then in 722, uh, Israel was conquered by Assyria, and most of Jews were hauled off to different locations and stuck in other parts of the country. That was part of the plan. Other parts of other countries in order to disperse the men so that they couldn't rise up. But they left a group of Jews in Samaria. And the <clears throat> the Jews that were in Samaria intermarried with foreigners and adopted some of, a lot of, pagan gods and their practices. And so thus, not only were Samaritans unclean because of that, they were also half-breed traders. Thus, the trip way around Samaria, Jewish people wouldn't even go through the town and significantly inconvenience themselves not to do so. And so this is the woman's surprise that we're going to see when she begins, when Jesus begins talking to her at the well. Look at uh, John chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. A woman came from Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, as we learned last week, Jesus is in the habit of overturning people's understanding of worship. He likes to shake things up a bit. And that happens here in this interaction with this woman. So in in response to her question, we're going to see that Jesus essentially makes three announcements. Who are you to talk with me? Why are you a Jew in this country talking with me a Samaritan a woman, and requesting that I actually handle the vessel and the water that you will be drinking out of. Who are you? And Jesus responds with three things in this passage. Three announcements. And his first announcement is, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. That's who I am. His second announcement is this, I offer the life that you are seeking. And his third announcement in response to her question is, and I am seeking the life that you are offering. That's who I am. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 10 and we're going to kind of read through it and then we're going to go back and unpack these announcements of Jesus Starting in John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give, that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Well, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship, you say Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So here's Jesus' first announcement. He announces that he is God. He is the Messiah. Look at verse 10. He says this, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given it to you. So what Jesus says in verse 10 is, if you knew the gift of God, what he is saying is God is the one who offers living water. True? And then in verse 14 he says, but everyone who drinks of this water, the water I will give, and he says this twice, So at first he says, if you knew the gift of God, God is the one who gives living water. And now he says, it's I who give this water. It's I am the one that's offering. He's clearly presenting himself as God. I offer the living water. I am God. And in order to prove that, he gives a prophetic insight and with a question. In verse 16, you have had five husbands and the one you are with now is not your husband. And the woman responds, you're, you're a prophet. You have divine insight. You have godly insight. And then in verse 22, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is of the Jews. Essentially what Jesus is doing here is he's correcting a misunderstanding um, that the Samaritans had. 
and he's not willing to let it slide. And he's saying, you guys are worshiping things you don't know. And at the end of the day, he says, the Messiah is a Jew. And so when he introduces himself with the question, can I get a drink of water? And she says, what are you, a Jew, doing asking me, a Samaritan? Jesus is distinctly saying, I am a Jew. And it's very clear that the, the Messiah will come from the Jewish people, not a Samaritan. In a sense, you have judged rightly in calling me a Jew. I am the one who gives living water. God is the one who gives living water. I am the Messiah. She references, I see that you are a prophet. And I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus very clearly says, the one you're talking about, that's me. I am God. I am the Messiah. This is Jesus' first announcement to her question. Who are you? Jesus' second announcement is this. I offer the life that you are seeking. In verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. In verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? The way that this is actually structured in the original Greek, she's expecting, it's a rhetorical question, and she's expecting a no. She's expecting a humble, no, I'm not greater. It's interesting that this woman right out of the gate negates what Jesus has to offer her. You have nothing to draw with, and are you greater? I think this is telling, church, if I think back over my own life as well as my interactions with people. When you begin to present the gospel of Christ to somebody who's either coming to Christ for the first time or leaning, learning obedience in a new way that they've never done before, I'm not sure that this is going to work. I'm not sure that you have a long enough rope to get to the bottom of my heart. I'm not sure that what you have to offer me, are you actually greater, Jesus? This isn't just a story about a woman at a well. This is written for us, church, right? Then Jesus responds, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water I will give will never be thirsty again. And that this drink that I am offering will well up to become a spring of eternal life in you. I am offering you life. He's offering this woman something that she has never tasted before. A deep satisfaction that solves all of her problems forever. All of the big questions that she's ever asked, he's offering to solve. Questions about meaning. Questions about hope. Questions about destiny and where you're going and purpose in life. Jesus is saying, I offer that to you. Last week we said that we are made to worship. And that that is evidenced even in the way culturally people cheer at concerts or football games. That's true. But more than that, we are made to worship the living God and nothing else will do. So all these things that we do culturally do reveal that we're made to worship, but they never quite make it. They don't 
do what they're supposed to do. They don't give us the purpose and the hope, nor do they accomplish the goal of glorifying the living God. We were made to worship the living God and nothing else will do. But this woman is obviously worshiping something else. And this is revealed when Jesus asks her to go get her husband. In verse 15, verse 16, go call your husband. Jesus is offering her life. And essentially in, in this question, what he's saying is, I'm offering you life and you are seeking life, but you're not finding it. And you've been seeking really hard in all the wrong places. Jesus knows her marital status. He knows the state of sin that she's living in. And she, he points out her need to be rescued from a life that is askew. Jesus is this living water that she is seeking. And he offers the, that life to her. And then his third announcement is, I am seeking the life you are offering. Verses 19 through 20, Jesus offers her, so Jesus offers her this living water, this new life. And here's her response. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. So our ancestors worshipped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now this is, this is an interesting response. The question is down here. Her response is up here. It's on the surface. Now she recognizes that Jesus sees straight through her life. She calls him a prophet. And later she would run around and tell everybody, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. So she sees that this is a question at the heart. And where does she go? She goes to the surface. I'm going to offer this. I think based on this scripture, I think this is true. Why does she respond that way? Because her response is rooted in shame. It's true for her specifically, given her condition and what God has talked to her about. It's also true of the human heart in general. So it not only captures this Samaritan woman's life and circumstances, but it also captures the heart of man. To push truth out from the center of our lives to the outskirts. That's what shame does. When light gets shown, when truth gets shown onto our the, the very core of our soul, we want to move. Our flesh squirms in the light. And what's happening here is Jesus is shedding light. He's offering her life, but that is shedding light on the very core of her being and she's squirming. She's... She's confronted with the reality of her sin and her, 
desperate search in the wrong places that she's willing to do anything that will give her meaning and comfort and intimacy. And she's faced with a personal invitation to living water, to trusting God, to turning to him. And the first thing she wants to do is to move the conversation to some religious debate on the outskirts of her life. Church, I'm going to offer to you that that's what worship, true worship does to us. It either draws us to God or it pushes us to to relegate to the outside. And so this is the pressure. This is why there is so much tension around worship in our churches today. This is why most of the reason for breakups in churches is about the worship. Why is that? Because worship, when, when it's done right, it exposes who God is and who we really are. And we squirm. And if we're not careful, that squirming looks like I don't like the way so-and-so is doing that, or I'm not really sure about this. And we start talking about the outskirts of our lives when the problem is in here. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to this woman at the well. You're really wanting to start that conversation there? So this woman wants to ask who and where and what place. I don't want to belabor this point because I feel like we've talked about this in the previous weeks, but here in this story, we're once again reminded of our propensity to drift. Our temptation as humans to turn the light off of us and onto something else. That's shame. That's a response of shame. Oh man, I don't, I don't, this is really uncomfortable. And so let's talk about other people's deficiencies in worship or, you know, the smoke and what, you know, what other people do in worship. Or let's talk about our, our own standards of righteousness versus the real true standards of righteousness because then I won't feel so exposed or, or let, let's talk about my preferences and my style and, and my type of worship. We want to push the spotlight of deep truth to a lesser area. Unpacking this verse, one commentator says this, true believers must stop this mindless, endless, meaningless bickering about sights and sounds of worship. God is not interested in Jews or Samaritans, Presbyterians or Methodists, Calvinists or Arminians. He is interested in worship, worshipers who must worship him in spirit and in truth. And church, that's the issue. And so like with the woman at the well, so with us, Jesus returns to the core of the matter. And he says, woman, believe me. The hour is coming and is now here. The father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus literally overturns her understanding of worship. It's not about Jew or Samaritan. It's not about Gerizim or Jerusalem. It's not about this mountain or that mountain. It's not about place or person or time. The core is not how of worship, but who. Now make no mistake, the who of worship drives the how. There is a how. It's not anything goes. But it's the who that drives the how. And again, Jesus says, true worshipers, which tells us that there are false worshipers, true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I kept reading this over and over and over and saying, what's the core? What do you have for us to learn? And it's this. Jesus says, the hour is coming. And it's now here. All of this is culminated, Jesus says, right now. This question about worship is about the conversation that this woman is having with Jesus. The hour is coming and is now here. This moment culminates in Jesus I who speak to you am he. It's true here for this woman, but it becomes more true later it would be fully completed, fully comprehended through Jesus' life, the remainder of his life, his death and his resurrection, as well as his promise of this residing spirit in all believers. Everything changes when Jesus shows up. Worship is completely different. Jesus says, There is a time, and the time is now, where worship changes. It's not about mountains and places. In one of his many songs, King David prayed for the occasion where time and place were not a determining factor. In Psalm 27, it's printed in your notes, David says this, One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord. He's got one request, one mission, one desire. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. David longs for this one thing. He's asking for it, he says. He's seeking after it. When he has a full and constant access to the presence of the Lord and he's able at any point in time to make inquiry, to ask questions, to constantly gaze upon the glory, the attributes of the Lord. I want to be able to do that all the time. I would just love to set up my living room in the temple and be able to worship God all the time. 
And Jesus announces to the Samaritan woman at the well and to everyone thereafter, David's prayers are fulfilled in me. David longed for a time when he could constantly live in God's presence. He looked for it. He longed for it. He sought after it. But he had no concept that this would be reversed and that God would make his house in the life of each believer, church. That radically changes the way we worship. You with me? This is really good news. Jesus is God. He offers himself as the Christ, the Messiah, the one who gives living water. He has come, John tells us, to make his living, his dwelling among men. John also tells us that when Jesus gets ready to depart in John chapter 14, he says to his disciples, the comforter is coming. The spirit is coming to reside in you. It's culminated at Pentecost when they're able to see the spirit residing in men, hearts or tongues of flames over top of them, showing that the spirit now lives in men individually. This access to God isn't just at the temple. The temple is, the temple curtain is torn and we have full and 24 access to God the Father, church, to make inquiry and to gaze upon his glory and to think about him and to worship him all the time. David prays for it, seeks for it, longs for it. I want to move in to the house of the Lord, church. He would have been blown away To find out that God said, I'm going to move my house into you. Jesus is God. He is our Messiah. And he offers us the life we are constantly looking for. He offers us that life. Church, our life is found in worship of God. It's where we find life. Our life is found when we stop thinking about our life. And we think about his life. And the less we think about our life and the more we think about his life, the more life we have. It's the way it works. It's a law of the universe. You can fight it, but you can't change it. The less you think about you and the more you think about him, you get more life. That's why this idea of thanksgiving is such an essential part of growing and changing. If you have your Bible, flip over to Colossians chapter 2. We just talked briefly about this. Verse 6, Paul says, now he's appealing to them based on their understanding of the preeminence of Christ and now the reality that Christ lives in them, that we are in him and that he is in us. Verse 6 Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Again, this is an urge to grow and change. Rooted and built up in Him. Established in the faith as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. Then in chapter 3 verse 12. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. 
and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Church, we find our life in worship. He is offering us the life we are looking for. And I go back to this definition of worship for us. Here's our assignment for this week. I want to encourage us as individuals and then families, or if you're, if you're part of a very small family, then do this with a friend or your spouse or somebody else. Knowing God for who He is and seeing and pondering His redemptive works and responding to that knowledge by esteeming God and valuing Him and treasuring Him and saying, I am satisfied with you. And then seeing ourselves rightly before Him and then pledging ourselves wholeheartedly to live completely for Him and then living our lives progressively permeated with actions that are consistent with His character. This is worship and we get life from this life that he's offering us. And here's the amazing thing. As John tells us. The father is seeking people that live like that. This is church. As we grow in our ability, this isn't just a good thing so we can grow and change and make our lives better. This is I'm fully submitting myself to a God who knows better and deserves my full trust. God is seeking. God is seeking us. We really need to let this sink in. David would have been blown away. Uh, God, I'm seeking you. But the fact that God is seeking me. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Just want to encourage you to walk through these four key parts of worship and just think about how do we apply that daily? How do we live in that? How do we grow in becoming the kind of worshipers that God seeks? For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In Second Chronicles chapter 16, King Asa has made some really bad choices, some dumb mistakes. The kingdom's being pulled out of his hand. But in the midst of this verse, this is meant as an indictment, but it's actually very true because if he would have done something otherwise, it could have been different. The word of the Lord says this, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts completely belong to him. For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts completely 
belong to him. Or Jesus says it this way, the father is seeking such people to worship him. Church, we get the, we get to be this kind of people to pronounce Jesus is God. He is my Messiah. He offers the life that only he can give. And he is seeking a worshiper just like me to worship him in spirit and in truth. And may we be, may we be the people that do that, the church that does that together and continue to grow into that. Father, we do want to be a people that worship you in spirit and in truth. And so strengthen us to focus on you, to be in your word regularly, to be active in thanksgiving, to be pledging our lives, and then to see you progressively live out your character through us, through sacrificial acts of kindness. Because of your commitment to us shown clearly through Jesus and your placing the Spirit, your Spirit in us, we have confidence that you will finish this work that you started. And Lord, we joyfully commit ourselves to be the kind of worshipers that you seek. And so we give you thanks and ask for you to hear us. In the name of our King and Savior Jesus, amen.